Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to be along with you on this Wednesday, or whenever you might happen to be listening to the program. i uh, got a lot on deck today. going to talk about the top 10 liturgical abuses and also the underlying reasons behind why so many of the faithful do not assist at Mass on Sundays anymore and why we have a vocations crisis that has led to parish closures and has left the church in the United States increasingly dependent on priests from foreign countries. But first, as always, the gospel reading from Sunday's traditional Latin Mass. It uh, was the last Sunday of the liturgical year, and on that Sunday each year in the traditional Latin Mass, we read our Lord's prediction of the Great Tribulation. This is from Matthew 24, verses 15 through 35, and we're taking our translation today from the New Catholic Bible. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation about which the prophet Daniel spoke, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is standing on the roof must not come down to collect what is in his house, and someone who is in the field must not turn back to retrieve his coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that you will not have to take flight in the winter or on a Sabbath, for at that time there will be great suffering that has not been equaled since the beginning of the world until now and will never again be duplicated. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, they will be shortened. Therefore, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and they will perform great signs and wonders that are impressive enough to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Remember, I have forewarned you about this. So if anyone says to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out there. If they, be, if they say, behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For just as lightning comes from the east and is visible in, even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the body is, there the eagles will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give forth its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a trumpet blast. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs become tender and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things take place, know that he is near at the very gates. Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. <coughs> Pardon me. This is the first half of what is called the Olivet Discourse, the final sermon uh, of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel delivered on the Mount of Olives. And the verses that we just read are generally understood to prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then verses 36 and following that, that come after 
refer to the second coming of Jesus. Now, this is the consensus of the fathers, and I think you can understand that um, because it says that uh, this generation will not pass away before these things come take place. So if he's speaking circa, you know, 33 AD, then, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem is 40 years later. That's a biblical generation, right? So obviously the, the world didn't end uh, in the first century. Uh, so it, it doesn't make sense uh, for it to be specifically about that if, you know, he's talking about something that's going to happen within a generation. Uh, like I said, that's the consensus of the fathers. But some scholars have interpreted the whole discourse to be about the destruction of Jerusalem. Others have interpreted the whole discourse to be about the second coming of Jesus instead of kind of a part one and two. In any case, we know that all the passages in the Bible both have a uh, or have both a literal and spiritual meaning. So this passage about the end of an age that occurred in 70 AD is also prophetic of the end of the age, which is to say the coming of Jesus. And <clears throat> therefore, the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem is also prophetic of the passing away of the heavens and the earth, which is why our Lord can so seamlessly segue from the foretelling of the destruction of Jerusalem into the prophecy of his second coming at the end of all things. Uh, Daniel's abomination of desolation that he uh, mentions refers to Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who burned Jerusalem and plundered the temple uh, back in the Old Testament days, and, and set up an altar to Zeus. That's the abomination of desolation in the holy place. <coughs> I'm sorry. I got a little frog in my throat. The Romans, though, would do likewise in 70 AD. Um, they even went so far as to sacrifice swine on the altar, right? The, the, the most unclean of unclean animals, and then eat and drink from the sacred liturgical vessels. And then they took it all away with them, uh, and actually destroyed the temple so effectively that, in the words of our Lord, not one stone was left upon another. So this gospel, then, is, is most appropriate for the last Sunday of the liturgical year, because the very next Sunday we enter into the season of Advent, right, this coming Sunday, to prepare for our Lord's coming. Now, liturgically, we're, we're preparing for his coming in the celebration of the Nativity, right? This is the, the season before Christmas. But we're also preparing for his coming in glory. And, and the Gospels of Advent stress that twofold preparation. <clears throat> you know, it starts with a, a gospel about the second coming. And then we hear the, the, the uh, preaching of John the Baptist and how our Lord interacted with him. So we end the liturgical year saying, look, the, the end of the age is coming. Christ is coming. And we need to be prepared for that. And then that segues into Advent where the liturgical year starts again. Now, uh, you may have noticed uh, we're using that new Catholic Bible for our translation today, and perhaps you can see why it's quickly becoming my favorite modern English translation, my favorite Catholic modern English translation. Uh, nice to see traditional translations like Abomination of Desolation in a modern Catholic Bible. However, I must confess that I did fudge one verse, Matthew 24, 28. I said, wherever the body is, there the eagles will gather, which is the classic Douay-Rheims translation based on St. Jerome's Latin Vulgate. You know, our, our Lord has been describing all these terrible things that are going to happen. And then comes this verse out of the blue, wherever the body is, there the eagles will gather. You know, what does it mean? Well, it's casting the future tense, so it's a prophecy. 
And, you know, I think traditionally the body is understood as to referring to the Eucharistic body of Christ, which at the end, right, as, as in the time of persecution in the very early church, you know, same as at the beginning, uh, the Eucharist can't be found just anywhere. <clears throat> Daniel prophesied that the Antichrist would take away the perpetual sacrifice as the Jewish sacrifice ceased uh, when Solomon's temple was destroyed in his day. And we know from St. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, that the great apostasy will have occurred uh, before the return of Jesus. Jesus himself in Luke 18, verse 8 says, when the Son of Man comes, do you think he will find faith on earth? Right? The implication being, maybe not. And, and suggesting that, uh, that the celebration of the Holy Mass, or at least the, the legitimate celebration of the Holy Mass, is going to be scarce. And, and already in our day, of course, we see parishes closing at an alarming rate and, and almost unbelievably low mass attendance. But, but where the Holy Mass is, there the Eucharist is found. And there will be gathered the eagles, which refer to the, to the saints of the church. Now, unfortunately, the New Catholic Bible, like most other modern English uh, versions, renders verse 28 differently. Rather than saying wherever the body is, there the eagles will gather, it says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Right? That's obviously, that's strikingly different. So why the change? Well, according to modern scholarship, this was a popular Jewish proverb that in this context signifies both the uncertain time of the Lord's coming and his universal presence, right? Both, both at once. Okay, but then why did St. Jerome translate it body and not corpse and eagles rather than vultures? Now, some would suggest, I think rather impiously, but some would suggest that he rendered it eagles uh, to refer to the Romans, right, who had eagles on their standards, casting them as, as scavengers on the corpse of Jerusalem, right, which, which would refer to the plundering of the temple. Okay, I mean, I can see that, uh, that interpretation, but it is an interpretation rather than a translation. The modern translators do that sort of thing all the time, but, but St. Jerome, you know, not so much. Uh, or could he have been mistaken? Well, St. Jerome was one of the four great Latin, Latin doctors of the church. Uh, but Koine Greek, right, uh, New Testament Greek, was his native language. Right? He knew New Testament Greek the way you and I know English. So if he says eagles, then I suspect that the Greek says eagles. Uh, likewise, uh, Origin of Alexandria, one of the very early church fathers, uh, who, you know, read the Gospels in Koine Greek. And he said, referring to the Greek New Testament, okay, not, not Jerome's Vulgate, but the Greek New Testament that Jerome translated from, Origen says, quote, observe, Jesus says not vultures or crows, but eagles, showing the lordliness and royalty of all who have believed in the Lord's passion. All right, so he's very, uh, very adamant that the word in the Greek is not vultures or crows, but eagles. And further, Jerome's translation tells us corpus, which is body in English, and not uh, corpse, which would be cadaver. All right, and we're going to understand why when we come back. Um, I want to say thank you for being with us. Got a lot of great stuff coming up, including top 10 liturgical abuses and, uh, and the loss of transcendence in the church. That and lots more. But we return with more No-Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Power Radio. Stay with us.
Okay, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Matthew Arnold here, coming to you from the uh, Orange County Command Post. I'm uh, Skyping in the show today, and uh, Richie tells me that I had the default camera microphone on. Just a uh, long story, I had to get a new computer last week. So uh, I'm, hopefully I am back on the correct microphone, and uh, maybe Richie can confirm that for us. I uh, want to give you the... Uh, okay. All right, excellent. Um, now, we were talking about uh, Matthew 24, 28, which in the Douay Reims and the Latin Vulgate is rendered wherever the body is, there the eagles will gather, and how modern tr English translations will say uh, wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. And I, I've gone through that, the, that uh, uh, in the original it is, in fact, eagles, and that the fathers of the church tell us that it's eagles and not vultures for a reason. And then Jerome's translation also tells us um, corpus, right, which is body in English, wherever the, the, the body is. If he had wanted to say corpse, as I mentioned before the break, the Latin word would have been cadaver. So the proper English translation is wherever the body is there, the eagles will gather. You know, eagles are not carrion birds. Unlike crows or vultures, eagles eat living flesh. And so that meaning of body is also clear. The eagles represent the faithful who in, you know, in 70 AD would know to flee to the mountains to escape the destruction of Jerusalem, and who would <clears throat> hope that it would not come in winter when, when you know, travel is difficult, or on the Sabbath when you can only go, you can't go more than 500 paces, right? Those things don't apply to us. Uh, but like eagles, of course, the faithful uh, then as now view, uh, well, that we see things from a higher perspective than those who are caught up in the world in the flesh and, and only see things from, from a worldly perspective. And where do the eagles gather? They gather with the body. That is to say, the body of Christ, not only the church and, and a representation of Christ on Calvary, but his Eucharistic body. Bishop Louis de Grosbriand, who participated, and I'm sorry about my French, uh, who participated in the first plenary session of uh, the Council of Baltimore and, and Vatican I also, uh, did a sermon on this gospel, and he said, and I quote, let us now, at least in spirit, kneel before the tabernacle and say, I firmly believe that Jesus Christ, the sovereign judge, is present under the appearance of bread, right? Tying this verse and this, this passage into the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. <clears throat> he says, through love of men, he shed his blood, and in the Holy Church, I find him day and night ready to listen to my prayers. Here is the holy table where he feedeth my soul under life everlasting, and here is the altar where he offers himself every day as a victim of thanksgiving and propitiation. Pardon, O Lord, all my negligences toward the mystery of thy body and blood. Grant that I may ever love thee, that I may often unite myself to thee in thy sacrament, and then I will fear neither death nor judgment. Wherever the body is there, the eagles will gather, and that is no nonsense. Okay, uh, moving on. Last Sunday, due to circumstances beyond my control, I was unable to assist at the traditional Latin Mass at our parish uh, with my beloved family. Now, of course, that means I was obligated to attend another celebration, which uh, means that I had to go to a celebration of the new order of the Mass. And so I did, and it was a powerful reminder of why I started going to the traditional Latin Mass in the first place. Now, there is such thing as a reverently celebrated Novus Ordo Mass, 
And, uh, and I would mention that daily masses, especially early morning masses, tend to have fewer abuses, uh, probably because there's fewer hands involved and, and who's got the energy for liturgical shenanigans before their first cup of coffee. But uh, the, the fact is that the Reverend Novus Ordo is something of a unicorn around here. I mean, it's rare to find an ordinary form mass locally that does not suffer from some, at least, uh, a liturgical abuse. And last Sunday, I witnessed a number of the most common abuses. And so today, I wanted to offer the, uh, or my, liturgical abuse top 10. Um, before the first, or the Second Vatican Council, right, before the imposition of the new Mass, there really weren't any surprises when you came to Mass. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I like the traditional uh, prefer the traditional mass. Um, that was the thing I was looking for. I just wanted to be able to go to mass on Sunday and and not have any surprises, not, you know, <clears throat> not find something that was going to leave me confused or upset or whatever, because I should be able to just go to mass. Um, and of course, in, in many places, you find priests that are, you know, improvising as they go along, or you'll even see uh, over the last, you know, however long I've been Catholic, 26, 27 years, uh, you see even archbishops and bishops issuing pastoral letters that are actually at odds with, uh, you know, the, the regulations, liturgical regulations of the church. Uh, St. John Paul II, um, back in 1998, so a couple of years after I converted, um, his ad limina address to the American bishops uh, of the Western states, okay, so this is where I live, he said, and I quote, that, um, you know, not all the changes in the liturgy right, the imposition of the Novus Ordo, quote, have always and everywhere been accompanied by the necessary explanation and catechesis. As a result, in some cases, there's been a misunderstanding of the very nature of the liturgy, leading to abuses, polarization, sometimes even grave scandal, unquote. Now, this is Pope John Paul saying, you know, it's, it's been at that time 28 years since the imposition of the new mass, and, and, and unfortunately, uh, people weren't taught and, it, and the changes weren't properly explained. And, and you know, he's basically saying that the, the liturgy got hijacked by people who had different ideas about the way things should be done. And of course, he says it's a scandal, a grave scandal. And we hear that word uh, in connection with the church all too often these days. But scandal, as I've um, pointed out many times before, comes from the Greek scandalon. The church uses it the same way our good Lord did in Matthew 18, when he says, you know, you, you're a scandal to me. Scandalon is the Greek word that means a stumbling block, right? The stumbling block that they would use when they slaughtered the sheep. And, and so symbolically then, uh, a scandal, a stumbling block is anything that would obstruct a person's way to the faith or the faithful's, uh, you know, journey to, to uh, salvation. So, you know, when mass is presented like it's an entertainment, or that it's, you know, casual and doesn't, you know, you don't have to kind of stick to the, uh, the to the rules. The, the whole point of it disappears. Uh, you know, um, if the ministers of the altar act like, and the people in the nave for that matter, act like Christ isn't present in the Eucharist, you know, and, and, and why would people in the parish think that the Eucharist is important or that means anything? You know, um, <clears throat> we know that statistically, and, and this is, you know, in 2018 BC, that's before COVID, um, <laughs> the the numbers of faithful that attended church on Sunday, or on any given Sunday, there would be you know maybe 23 percent of American Catholics uh, in church, and that's pretty abysmal. I mean, that's a failing grade. 
prior to the Novus Ordo and prior to Vatican II, 75% of American Catholics went to church every Sunday. And now it's down to a little over 20%. And that's in, you know, that's, that means something. Uh, in France, where things had, you know, I mean, things were already worse there after the first or the second world war. In 1952, they had 27% attendance, something like what we have now. In 2017, mass attendance in France, I mean, talking about the Novus Ordo Mass at, at parish churches, was 1.8%. I mean, less than 2% of the citizens of, you know, the, the, the eldest daughter of the church, as France used to be known, only less than 2% go to Mass on Sunday. <clears throat> this is a, you know, this is a big deal. And, you know, of course, we all, we have lots of, uh, um, Catholics, American Catholics among the 23%, some 70 odd percent of them don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, you know? And, and so a strong argument, you don't want to fall into post hoc ergo propter hoc, as I always say, but I think you can make a pretty strong argument that it was this loss of structure in the liturgy and the loss of the sense of transcendence, which we're going to talk about later which really caused an erosion of the faith. And, and then in the process, it dealt a real blow to vocations, uh, you know, in the American priesthood. I mentioned um, at the top of the show that so many parish churches in the United States are closing, and many parish churches, even here in Southern California, where we have a really big uh, uh, Catholic population, we have a lot of priests now from, you know, Vietnam and from the Philippines and from Nigeria. There's 70 million Catholics, you know, so-called in the United States. We're one of the richest, most prosperous countries in the world. The church is doing very well here, you know, at, I mean, financially speaking. We should be sending missionary priests all over the world. And instead, we're, we're depending on priests from these poor countries to fill in for us uh, uh, at Sunday Mass. You know, and, and I have to think that, uh, that it was this erosion of the faith that led to the situation, you know, um, you can go, if you're, if you're looking at something and saying that doesn't seem right, you can certainly, uh, go, uh, find a copy of the general instruction of the Roman Missal and find out what's supposed to be going on. Or, or more simply, you look at any number of the documents that have come out, um, in recent years, I think probably the most important being Redemptionis Sacramentum, which came out in 2004, which just, you know, lays out, this is an abuse, this is an abuse, this is an abuse, and here's what you should be doing instead, very clearly. Uh, and so I recommend that to you. It's right on the Vatican's website, Redemptionis Sacramentum. All right, and there's been any number of uh, uh, directives uh, from the uh, Congregation of the Sacraments and Divine Worship and the, and the Congregation for uh, the Doctrine of the Faith over the years, right? And above all, you just get a copy of, of the Order of the Mass. You know, I mean, if you subscribed Magnificat, it'll be there, you know, and, and that's the thing. It's, it's, un, it's difficult to find the whole order of the mass outside of, you know, the, the big altar books, the missiles that they use in the church. And, you know, the, and the regular missalette isn't necessarily uh, that accurate or that complete, but I, you know, in the Magnificat, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, all right. So what are these uh, liturgical abuses? Many of which I encountered last week. Well, we'll start with the general ones. And, and I can say, thankfully, that I didn't encounter these. Um, uh, and the first is just not following the prescribed texts. That's a big deal, and it's a big deal to me. And 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 I actually, actually, I did encounter this this Sunday. I'll talk about it in a minute. But 
<clears throat> this is probably the most widespread abuse. And you would think that the fact that there is such a thing as an order of the mass, that the priests and, and other ministers in the sanctuary would know that that means you're not supposed to change or improvise. But but apparently it's not enough to to uh, get them to behave that way. One of the things that uh, that I encounter and that you have probably heard is lectors eliminating male pronouns from their readings uh, of from the Bible or even priests. Uh, I've known to do this, like when it says he in reference to God, they'll just replace the, the, the personal pronoun with uh, God. Um, and I, I even remember uh, an instance where um, the word himself related to God was uh, rendered as God's self, which isn't just an abuse of the liturgy, it's an abuse of the English language. God's self isn't even a word. <laughs> but that, you know, deviating from the text, that's number one. And we will continue with the rest of the list uh, and then talk about loss of transcendence in the church when we return with more No-Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I've been talking about uh, liturgical abuse, and that is an issue. And uh, we brought up the first of the kind of top 10 list of liturgical abuses, and that's disregarding or uh, um, replacing or improvising the, uh, instead of using the prescribed texts for the order of the Mass. And I talked about using inclusive language where it's not, uh, uh, where it's not a part, you know, re- uh, reading the Bible in a way that, you know, with words that it doesn't have, that sort of thing. And then, you, you know, you see a, a priest will do it as well. Um, I think one of the most common is in the Nicene Creed, where it says um, that Christ was born for us men and for our salvation, that they'll admit the word men, just for us and our salvation. Or uh, or they'll generalize, uh, generalize. like in the the um, washing of the, of the hands, you know, the the priest says, Lord, wash away my iniquities and cleanse me of my sins. And you'll hear priests say, our iniquities and cleanse us of our sins. You know, and I don't know what, where that comes from. A, some, a misguided idea that everybody is somehow uh, celebrating the Mass and, and not just the celebrant. Um, anyway, the, and that's, that's, a, that's a number of things. The, the, the point is that going all the way back to Sacrosanctum Concilium, the, the, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy at Vatican II, it says regulation of the sacred liturgy depends solely on the authority of the church. That is on the apostolic see and as laws may determine on the bishop. <clears throat> Therefore, no other person, even if he be a priest, may add, remove, or change anything in the liturgy on his own authority. And that's pretty clear. And it was repeated any number of times in, in the, the documents that came out uh, to try and correct the abuse, like uh, Sacrum Liturgium, and uh, and uh, I mentioned Redemptionis Sacramentum. Also, um, in Inestimabile Donum, which came out back in 1980, way in 1980, it said deviations from the order are illicit, and when done intentionally, they are a grave offense. That's the Vatican II term for mortal sin. They are a grave offense both against the church and against the faithful who have the right to an authentic liturgy. When people abuse the liturgy, they're abusing you. They're, they're, they're committing a sin against the church and they're committing a sin against the faithful. 
And so, yeah, when they say, what's the big deal? That's the big deal. Uh, let's see. Coming up next would be replacing the homily, right? Uh, uh, the way it works is that um, there must be a homily on Sundays and holy days. The priest doesn't have to say a holiday or say a homily on weekdays unless it's a holy day. But Sundays and holy days, there has to be a homily. And a homily has to be given by the priest or deacon or bishop. Okay? The non-ordained don't get to give the homily. Now, there are times when, uh, you know, let's say if the, if the bishop was to write a letter and, and say to all the pastors that this uh, letter must be read um, after the gospel at every mass on this coming Sunday or whatever, he's got something important to impart. Okay, that's an exception. Uh, and there are um, groups that that have uh, are dispensed, right? That they can, um, you know, the Society for the Propagation of the Faith can send somebody, or, or people preaching missions, or whatever, can come and and uh, and talk in that in that place. But all things being equal, there has to be a homily, and it has to be given by clergy. So you can't just leave it alone, or you know, talk about something else. You're supposed to, you know, homilies. Uh, are very uh, clearly Paul six and Evangelii Nutiandi and Inter Ecumenici Ecumenici Ecumenici. Boy, that's hard to say. A lot of vowels in that word. <laughs> you don't pronounce them all. Ecumenici. Um, he says very clearly that um, the homily should relate the readings to one another and to indicate how their message can be applied in the lives of parishioners. Now, obviously, making announcements or giving the financial report or, or you know, making a plea for, for money is not the same thing as a homily. I mean, if the bishop, in, you know, tells them to do that, they need to do a homily first and then and then do that. You know, and of course, I, you should make a fuss if, if uh, after the homily, you know, your priest takes a couple of sentences to mention the parish festival or, you know, uh, tell how much more the building fund needs or whatever. You know, just be reasonable. But, uh, but can't omit the homily. And also, just incidentally, uh, the general instruction of the Roman Missal, number 97, says that during the homily, the priest may not leave the sanctuary. So if your priest is, you know, Father Phil Donahue, and he takes the wireless mic and goes out into the, into the nave amongst the people to deliver the homily, that is an abuse, a clear abuse uh, against uh, the liturgical rules. Uh, a related thing is interrupting the mass. And this might sound weird, but I can tell you, I've seen it with my own eyes. You can't stop the mass to make announcements or, or to give the financial report or whatever, um, or, or to have a, a skit or bring on the liturgical dancers or any of those, which are, which are things that are unlawful in themselves. All right. So you can't interrupt the mass. And, uh, the next, uh, which would be number four, I guess, on the list is something that I see all the time, including this Sunday, and it's a real issue for me, which is uh, to leave out the penitential rite. And, and you know, th this can be misunderstood, so you need to be careful. Right in the, in the, in the missal, and I've got it in front of me here, uh, there are three different forms of the penitential act. Now, the first is the common one, and, you know, all things being equal, the one you would expect. Uh, the priest says brethren, or the optional brothers or sisters, if he says sisters and brothers, that is an abuse. Uh, brethren, he says, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mystery. And then the priest and the people uh, recite the confidier, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, etc. And then, 
um, they go on to the, the Kyrie, which is the next part of the Mass. The, the second option is where um, the, the priest and the people have this uh, dialogue. It's a very short version. And, and I've seen it done. It's not that uh, common, but you see it, where he says, the priest says, have mercy on us, O Lord. And the people say, for we have sinned against you. And he says, show us, O Lord, your mercy. And the people say, and grant us your salvation. Short, and then it goes moves into the Kyrie. Then you have number three, or option C, which is also fairly common. The priest or the other minister says, uh, you were sent to heal a contrite of heart. Lord, have mercy. And the people respond, Lord, have mercy. And the priest says, you came to call sinners. Christ, have mercy. The people say, Christ, have mercy. You are seated at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And then no matter which version of the penitential rite, um, it goes to the, uh, the absolution. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. If that doesn't happen, you didn't do the penitential rite. Now, I should mention, though, that option C, um, which includes the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, this penitential rite, um, if you do it this way, you don't have to do the Kyrie. But what I see constantly these days is the priest makes a sign of the cross, and then goes right to the Kyrie and just skips the penitential rite altogether. And that is not allowed. Also, uh, one other exception is um, typically in the Easter time, you'll have um, priests using the, the rite of sprinkling. They'll do the asperges may, where they go throughout the whole congregation, sprinkling everybody with holy water, right? It's rite of blessing. And in the old mass, that would, you would do that, and then the priest would vest in his chasuble and, and start the prayers at the foot of the altar, and you do the whole penitential rite and so forth. In the new order of the mass, um, I understand that the rite of blessing uh, uh, can replace the penitential rite because you're, you know, you're kind of reenacting baptism. All right. But you can't just leave it out. That's an abuse. Uh, okay. Uh, let's see. Moving on to number five, nobody can dictate your posture. Okay. I have been at parishes where ushers will tell you to, to stand up if you're kneeling. Um, or, or, you know, you've gone to, to parishes that don't have any kneelers at all. You're trying to discourage you. I, I once had a, a, a priest liturgist giving a, a lecture at our parish said that we were building a new church building. And he said, I hope you're not going to have kneeling in it because kneeling is, uh, you know, kneelers that's, that's, uh, from the, the middle ages, you know, that's an accretion that we should do away with. And it's like, wow, it seems to me in the gospel, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bend. You know, obviously kneeling has been part of our, you know, celebration of the, uh, of the Holy Mass since the very beginning. Uh, but anyway, if you're, if you're kneeling, they can't tell you to stand up, right? At the celebrant, and the same thing with the priest, he can't tell you to stand up, get off your knees to receive Holy Communion or whatever. Because the celebrant and the ushers can't mandate your posture, right? But the law does, Okay. Everybody at Mass, according to the General Instruction of the Roman Missal, everyone is supposed to be uniform in standing, sitting, kneeling. But there are universal rules about it. Now, in this country, you are required to kneel during the consecration and from after the end of the Sanctus until the Great Amen, even if there aren't any kneelers. I mean, the, the, the appendix to the General Instruction number 21 points that out, that if, even if there aren't any kneelers, you still have to kneel. You're required to, to kneel or to at least bow at the words by the power of the Holy Spirit in the creed, talking about that, how Jesus became incarnate, the Blessed Virgin, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you have to genuflect 
whenever you pass the Eucharist. And it's customary to genuflect before you uh, enter into the pew. You know, whether or not the tabernacle uh, is publicly exposed, you know, as long as there's the tabernacle there and the Eucharist is present, you can see the little red light, then you need to do the genuflection. And contrary to what you see in a number of churches these days, that tabernacle can't be tucked away in a closet or in a corner someplace out of the way. According to uh, the directors of the church, it should be, and I quote, placed in a part of the church that is prominent, conspicuous, beautifully decorated, and suitable for prayer. Okay? And if, if it's not, then that is an abuse. Uh, similarly, dictating the manner that you receive in which you receive Holy Communion. Okay, Vatican II, first off, said nothing about communion in the hand. There were countries that introduced that practice illicitly, and Pope Paul VI was uh, asked to correct it, and what he did was uh, send out a survey to the bishops of the world to see, uh, to ask, should that be allowed where it already exists, where people are already doing it? And the answer came back, no. But he didn't want to just suddenly suppress uh, you know, receiving communion in the hand, so he granted an indult. To, to let the practice continue for a time where it was already being done. Now, oddly enough, the bishops of the United States, where the practice did not exist, asked his permission to introduce it here, and even more strangely, it was granted. But the universal norm is still to receive kneeling and on the tongue, and you cannot be refused when you want to receive that way. Okay, coming back with the rest of the list and more right after this on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, going through the top 10 Eucharistic or, or liturgical abuses. We were talking about um, reception of Holy Communion. The, the uh, <clears throat> pardon me, that, um, you know, the, the local parish or whatever cannot dictate the manner in which you receive Holy Communion. And the norm in the United States is that you receive standing and in the hand, but every the, you know, the universal norm is that you receive kneeling and on the tongue, and every Catholic has the right to receive in that way, certainly, even if not kneeling, to receive on the tongue, and you may not be refused uh, by the priest or by uh, the extraordinary minister simply because you want to receive on the tongue or because you want to receive uh, on the tongue and kneeling. Okay. Uh, number seven uh, would be to ignore the rules regarding the reception of the Eucharist. And of course, we just had a whole bishop's conference about this very topic. <clears throat> Should communion be uh, um, withheld from manifest public sinners, in this case, uh, particularly politicians who are uh, unapologetically pro-abortion and who vote for it. And who, you know, I mean, that's uh, making abortion legal, keeping it legal, making it, uh, you know, using tax money to fund it uh, is a, a sin of cooperation that isn't uh, different really from driving somebody to the abortion clinic to to get their abortion or for paying for it. You know, this it is it is a sin. And when people are unapologetic publicly, they really should be not allowed to to receive communion. But there's there's rules that apply to everybody that are not, you know, such extraordinary circumstances. And first off is that you, 
you must be properly disposed. I mean, back around the turn of the century, the National Conference of Catholic Bishops uh, put out, you know, the, the new rules for the reception of communion. But it, it says that clearly in order to be properly disposed to receive communion, participants normally should have fasted for one hour, abstaining from food and drink except water and medicine. So the fast, the Eucharistic fast, that's a real thing, and you need to take it into consideration before you receive communion. I remember, you know, being being uh, at mass and and seeing some young person eating a lollipop during the homily, and then and then going up to communion like it was nothing. You know, so you, you have to fast for at least an hour. Also, non-Catholics, except in the rarest of of very specific circumstances, non-Catholics are never to receive communion in the Catholic Church, right? That, that communion is when when the priest holds up the, the host and says the body of Christ, you know, and you say amen, you're, you're acquiescing to everything the church teaches, most especially that you believe that Christ is truly present in the Holy Eucharist. And if you don't believe those things, you oughtn't to be receiving communion. It's that simple. And obviously that uh, that especially goes for people who aren't members of the church at all. All right. Um, I'm afraid that the the instruction is kind of vague. It says uh, non-Catholics should ordinarily not be committed to holy or admitted to holy communion because there's these very rare circumstances where it's okay. The problem is because they didn't spell it out. It seems like a lot of priests uh, just think it's all right for non-Catholics to take communion on special occasions. Oh, it's a wedding. It's a funeral, right? Oh, this person's prominent, right? Oh, he's a government official. He's a head of state, so I'm going to give communion to him. Right, like Bill Clinton famously receiving communion in a Catholic church, even though he's a Baptist. Um, you know, the exceptions are so few and so rare that they either should have pointed it out or just said that, you know, non-Catholics should not be admitted to Holy Communion. But, but you know, that's, that's up to the bishops, not to me. Point is, if you don't believe what the church teaches about Holy Communion, you shouldn't be presenting yourself from Holy Communion. And also, you are required to be free from grave sin, it says. Now, that's, again, that's code for what we used to call mortal sin, uh, what I still call mortal sin. Uh, and that means that if you have committed a mortal sin, you should not receive communion until you have been absolved in confession. And I think that's one of the things that has completely gone out the window, because as you see, you go to any Novus Ordo parish and virtually everybody goes to communion, and you go there on a Saturday and you can see that the numbers of people going to confession are not, you know, commensurate with the number of people presenting themselves for communion. And I think that's an issue, too. All right. Um, moving on. Number eight, holding hands during the Our Father. I've talked about this a lot. You know, this is one of those things that happened, um, I think, in the 70s. You had people saying, oh, that the Oren's position, right, like where the priest holds his hands out. He says, the Lord be with you, with his hands extended, and the people extend their hands and say, and with your spirit, okay? You're not supposed to imitate what the priest does. I don't know how that fad got started, but it's but it's an abuse. It's, it's forbidden. You don't do that. You don't imitate the posture of the priest. And uh, um, also, I think that uh, the, the, the hand-holding thing um, also reaffirms that a priest is not to invite the congregation up into the sanctuary to stand around the altar and hold hands during the consecration. Like I've seen it, you know, they used to do it at the life teen mass. All right. He stays in the sanctuary. We stay outside of it. That's the way, that's the way it works. Um, 
you know, um, back in 1975, when this first started, um, the official uh, publication of the Congregation for the Sacrament uh, and Divine Worship, which is called Notitiae, they put out an article and, and it states, quote, the practice must be repudiated. Talking about holding hands during mass. It is a liturgical gesture introduced spontaneously, but on a personal initiative. It is not in the rubrics. Anything that's not in the rubrics is unlawful. Why? Because it says no other person may add anything to the liturgy on his own authority, and that includes us. So when the, when the Our Father comes, hold your hands together like a good Catholic. Number nine, um, this is a no-brainer, performing liturgical dance, okay? Um, the idea of liturgical dance in the Mass was first proposed as a means of enculturation for, you know, people that, you know, pagan people um, that had dance as part of their religious experience could incorporate it into the Mass. It's, it was a question. And, but for the United States, um, again, in, in Notitiae, the, the Sacred Congregation for Divine Worship in the Sacrament says, and I quote, that to dance in the liturgy in the United States would be to add, quote, one of the most desacralized and desacralizing elements, leading to an atmosphere of profanity, which would easily suggest to those present worldly places and profane situations. Nor is it acceptable to introduce into the liturgy the so-called artistic ballet, because it would reduce the liturgy to mere entertainment. Unquote. Liturgical dance, at least in this country, it's an abuse. And then number 10, emptying the holy water fonts for some reason. Of course, now this is this applied to, you know, BC and AC, which is before COVID and after COVID. You know, I mean, it, it was such a mess. But for many, many years, parishes, especially like during Lent, they'll take the holy water out of the holy water fonts. And maybe even like replace it with sand. Oh, it's Lent. We're in the desert. Oh, it's like, that's what we're fasting from holy water. We're fasting from sacramentals. That that's absurd. Uh, to, to empty holy water fonts during Advent or Lent is not found anywhere in the liturgical law. And that's enough to suppose it's forbidden. And it makes absolutely no sense. It's a sacramental. It carries with it a, a degree of forgiveness of sin and remission of punishment. That's right in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. There is no spiritual benefit uh, to be derived from depriving the faithful of this legitimate sacramental at any time, for any reason. In fact, removing it during a penitential season is, is particularly weird because that's when we need it the most. Now, as a, as you thank you, Richard just gave me his personal opinion in my headphones. So I, to, <laughs> I won't repeat it, but, uh, but I will say this in conclusion, I, I'm reading now from Redemption, Redemptionis Sacramentum, which was the latest, um, uh, universal document on this topic. And, and here's where the rubber meets the road. It's an, in an altogether particular manner. It says, let everyone do all that is in their power to ensure that the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist will be protected from any and every irreverence or distortion, and that all abuses be thoroughly corrected. This is a most serious duty incumbent upon each and every one, and all are bound to carry it out without any favoritism. In other words, everybody, you or me included, because it goes on to say any Catholic, whether priest or deacon or lay member of Christ faithful, has the right to lodge a complaint regarding a liturgical abuse 
to the diocesan bishop or to the competent ordinary equivalent to him in law, right? So if you don't have a bishop, maybe an, an abbot or whatever, or to the apostolic see on account of the primacy of the Roman pontiff, right? So you can always send a letter to the bishop, you can send a letter to Rome. It is fitting, it says, however, insofar as possible, that the report or complaint be submitted first to the diocesan bishop. This is naturally to be done in truth and charity. Okay, so there you have it. And I know that, uh, that you may have had an experience of writing a letter to the bishop only to be ignored. Uh, but it is, you know, that, that is what it is. And you don't have any control over that. But you do have a duty to say something. And it's incumbent upon each and every one, whether priest or deacon or member of lay, Christ, lay faithful. We have a right to a properly, legitimately, licitly, authentically celebrated liturgy. And we have a right to take due measures to correct it within our power, within our state of life. So you, you do what Jesus said, right? You take it to your brother. You go to the priest and say, you really oughtn't to do that. And if he says, yeah, you know, go climb a tree, then you write to the bishop. And if he says, go climb a tree, you write to the Pope. And then when you stand before God at the end of all things, you can say, I did what I could. And you will have done. And that's no nonsense. You know what? We only have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to talk a little bit about transcendence that I believe uh, that, that, it, that that loss of the transcendent is the thing that is, you know, uh, driving people out of the church, really. I, I'm going to say something controversial, and only because um, I don't think anybody has said it in my hearing, and that is that, that, that the new uh, order of the Mass was never really accepted by the, the faithful, because, and I'm not talking about just, you know, the little sliver of the faithful that, that continue to go to the traditional Latin Mass, but the great mass of the faithful that confronted with the new paradigm simply left the church. And, and the first culprit is that we have lost the sense of the transcendent in the liturgy. Now, I wanted to talk more about that, so we'll do that uh, next time. And in the meantime, I want to say thank you so much for listening. And thank you for, for helping us with your prayers, especially. And uh, if it's possible, you can visit the website, vmpr.org, and uh, hit that donate button or become a monthly donor. Lots of good stuff um, for people that donate monthly, especially at a certain level. So go to vmpr.org and check that out. Also, we have the uh, Spiritual Warfare Conference coming up in January of 2022. Read all about it on vmpr.org. And remember to register now because it's filling up fast. Until next time, thanks for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family.